This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia Torah, the old city of Jerusalem, overlooking the Western Wall. Dreams. Dreams. What are your dreams? What does it take to achieve them? You might have thought I was going to talk about dreaming today, which is actually a subject I speak a lot on. But I wasn't going to talk about that. What I was going to talk about was, is what I'm talking about is, is your actual dreams in your life. Uh, what are you dreaming? You know, when I think about, when I think about young children, they have dreams about life and what they could be, and they, 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 you know, there's no end to the possibilities. They, they have. There's great possibility for children, and we and we say that to them often that you know you can be anything you want you know when you grow up. I mean, maybe they don't say that in the observant community, but the rest of the world does. You know you can you know they're just it's like I see it as like the center with like a thousand arrows pointing off of the center where it could go in any direction, and and what happens then is is that it. It's slowly, you know, obviously you have to learn to figure out what it is you do want, like where you're going to actually point to, because if you don't point to something, you, you know, if you try to point to everything, you'll, you'll wind up with nothing. So you do have to narrow it down. But, but often it gets narrowed down to other people's dreams, not your own. You know, it, it gets narrowed down to dreams you were influenced toward instead of the dreams that you might have had. And so... And so what happens is that we're not really dreaming our dream, but we're dreaming some dream that was given to us by someone else, some, some, someone else's. And make a bracha boch ata So I'd like to talk a little bit about the mechanics of what would possibly take away our dreams. So the it's mostly what stops us is the fear of of rejection and failure that stop us from our dreams because the fear of rejection and the fear of failure these two fears rejection and failure are are inevitable if you live your dream meaning if you were to actually pursue your dream in your life, not everyone's going to be so excited. Not everyone's going to be so happy about it. I mean, think about a fundraiser who's got to call a, he's got to call a hundred people for his cause, and his cause is uh, you know right now I'm helping some guy who has twelve hundred um, special needs kids living on site in his organ in his you know institution. And so he's arriving in Toronto in, in a few hours um, to fundraise there. And you might think this is a table for two. You might think that that it's um, you know like special needs. Like, wouldn't everyone like that? Like special needs kids to be helped? And the answer is no. Yeah, everyone would like that, but how many people are going to get behind it? And the answer is certain types of people. And there will be those people, but everyone else is going to be a rejection. Meaning, everyone else is going to give one hundred and eighty dollars. To his organization, but uh, he, right now the deficit's two million, and so one hundred and eighty dollars is a rejection and a failure. Although you know you can build off one hundred and eighty bucks, 
over a period of time, you know, like you could, but I don't think they have that kind of time. So, but it's fine because all they're looking for is out of the hundred people he'll talk to in Toronto, he just needs two or three. And two or three get behind him, introduce him to the right people, he's done. He's done with the whole task. But how many rejections will he have to suffer till he gets there? And, and the chance of failure are also very high. Now, rejection and failure are the most scary things in the world because rejection and failure are triggers for other types of voices inside of us. So what does rejection and failure trigger? So rejection can trigger uh, unwanted, unloved, unacceptable, uh, you know, unwanted, unloved, unacceptable, you know, etc., like a million other ones. Or failure can trigger um, incapable, dumb, not good enough, Etc. And, and and a bunch more after that. So so rejection and failure are 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 fears that trigger deep pain inside of us, very deep pain inside of us. And and so what happens is whatever your dreams might be in your life, like things you'd like to accomplish, if you want to actually accomplish them, you have to break through rejection and failure. You're going to have to break through it because a lot of people are going to reject and a lot of people, and it's going to fail multiple times because the price for success is failure. You have to fail a lot of times to get to success. Price for success is failure. Very few people are willing to pay that price. Most people taste failure and they spit it out quickly and move in another direction. But successful people chew on the fat of failure. They chew on the fat of failure and, and, and learn all its lessons. I was once in uh, putting my guitar in, in the first class on an LL flight. And I said to the nice stewardess who helped me put my guitar there, I said to her, uh, would you say there's a lot of competition at the top? And she said, yeah, a lot of competition at the top. And I said, well, that's interesting you say that because there's only six seats in first class. There's 20 in business. They're all basically empty, most likely because they're still in the lounge. And, uh, you know, they're called last to the plane. And then I said, look at the back of the plane. The back of the plane looked like a jungle. People were like, I mean, there was almost a fist fight breaking out as we spoke over, you know, positioning in the overhead compartment and a a bunch of other people fighting over seats and stuff. And and one person had reclined into the legs of the person behind them uh, and the plane still hadn't even taken off. But he thought it was time to recline. Anyway, there was like total mayhem all going on at once, which is why I thought of it, because I looked down there before I even spoke to the stewardess about this and noticed like, like this plane was about to like erupt in an all-out riot. And, and I said, well, if you look at this plane, it looks like all the competition's at the bottom. There's very little competition at the top. And she thought about that for a moment. She said, yeah, that's an interesting thought. And the reason is, is because very few people in humanity are willing to 
as I said before, chew on the fat of failure and go fail. Like it says in, in the Facebook headquarters, they have signs up, you know, to motivate the workers there. They have signs up there in, in Facebook that say, that say, say, one of the signs up says, fail hard, fail hard. As opposed to, I don't know what it would be, a try hard. I don't know what it was playing on. Maybe it was playing on try hard, but it was saying fail hard because failure is the pushback that you're doing something. You understand? Like until something's failed, you don't know that you did anything yet. Failing is the indicator that you've, that something's getting done here. And the fact that you failed means that you pushed up against, uh, you pushed up enough against the world that it failed. And, and until you failed, you have no idea where you are geographically. And the same is true about rejection. Same is true about rejection in that, in that till you get a proper rejection, how do you know where the edge of your social interaction is? How do you know where the edge of that is? I remember many years ago, many years ago, I was uh, doing this class and I, you know, I had this live feed camera up and and uh, I was teaching, and I forget, I, I can't remember exactly the circumstances, but it was, I don't know, I think, I think maybe what happened one day was, no, it was, <laughs> I think I saw some other public speaker saying stuff that was really provocative, and, but on point, but really provocative and on point. And I thought to myself, gee, I'm really holding back. I'm nowhere near the edge here. I'm nowhere near the edge. I'm, I'm playing safe in my, as a teacher, I play safe. And you can understand, obviously, being part of the orthodox world, you know, that like, maybe you should play it safe. You know, after all, there's a, there's a, there's a constant critic involved in being part of the black hatitude community. You know, where there's like, you would think like, you better be careful what you say, you know, because, you know, you could really get some, some negative pushback from that. And so I decided, you know what I'll do? I'll try it. I'll try just saying what should be said rather than what maybe would be acceptable by everyone. And I'll stop being so, you know, so vanilla. This is many years ago. This is over a decade ago. And... And I said, okay, let's go. And I started just saying the truth. I started just speaking the truth. And I'll just say the truth. And we'll see how it, how it pushes back. And, I, you know, in a way, I'm kind of not practicing what I preach because, because it never pushed back. But I didn't push harder. Maybe I should be pushing harder. But I've, my commitment was to say the truth. And I, I really, you know, I say the truth. And the, and so, but it never pushed back. And then I got kind of embarrassed for my career before that, my vanilla career of like, did I even say anything those years? Like, was, was anything said so important? You know, with uh, you know, constantly looking over my shoulder. Basically, 10 years ago, I took my rearview mirror off the windshield and I just threw it out the window. And I put the pedal to the metal. And that has made all the difference in my career and my listenership. And it's, I think it's very refreshing for a lot of people. 
And and I hope I'm not exposing too many people, but that would be obviously the feedback I'd get if people felt exposed, they generally attack. And and that's almost it's only you know, I get trolled once a year maybe, but you know, trolls you just you just send them the following message. You say you say I put myself out publicly exposing myself and therefore my wife and kids every single day live. And if you can't send an email with your name and phone number on it, your real name and phone number on it from a real email address, consider this our last communication. And that's it. They go away. Never come back. And so you're really not supposed to answer a troll, but I figured that answer is the strong answer. And so I, so that's my answer, is that have the courage to engage with me because I'm engaging with the world and you know, like, how, how dare you send me an anonymous message with an attack in it? Anyway, but that's the most pushback I ever got. <sighs> what I'm basically saying, ladies and gentlemen, is, is start pushing. Start pushing. And when you push, you get to your dreams. And when you get to your dreams, you sleep well at night. You know why? You know why you sleep well? Because if you live your dreams long enough, you start getting feedback and feedback's very important for human beings. We need feedback. Not necessarily for our ego, you know, like feel better that people said, hey, that was great. You know, oh, that really meant a lot to me. It's not just for that. That helps, especially when you're in a low mood to hear good feedback about something. You'd like to hear anything good in a low mood. That's why you should get rid of your low mood clothing. You should be wearing, you, if you're in a low mood, like wear an outfit you'd wear to a wedding that day. We're not for you so that you're in a low mood, right? It's not going to be a great day, but everyone you meet just says, hey, "You just look terrific today." Wow, where are you going? And, you're just, and of course, you're just in a low mood, and and there. But it'd be nice to have someone tell you you look terrific all day long in a low mood. You know, that'd be a good thing. But instead, what do people do? They put on a hoodie and just you know something baggy and just kind of mope around all day. So another hint for low moods, by the way, is is that you want to do all the things that you said you do in your life in a low mood day. Have you ever noticed when you're in a low mood, you drop the things you do? Bad idea. The only thing you have in your life is the stuff you do and then your state of being while you're doing it. So if your state of being is really low, what's left? If, meaning you, you don't have a state of being, what's left? The things you do. But what do people do? They drop the things they do in a low mood. Really bad idea. And that's a good way to get your low moods to stick longer. So you, when in a low mood, you dress for success. You do the things you'd said you'd do. I mean, things you're committed to, you do them. Not a good day not to show up to work. That is the day to show up to work, for sure. And the, uh, and the last thing is that you do not click on any thoughts that day. All your horribly dark, all your horrible dark thinking comes without analysis. No clicking on the headlines. You just let it scroll by. My thoughts are a scrolling marquee. And just scrolling by. No going in there to analyze situations. You're not fixing a thing that day. No fixing nothing. And if you follow this advice, you'll be doing much better. Uh, Since I'm on it, I might as well finish it. Uh, A little extra caffeine in a low mood day. Uh, only on the fog lifter in the morning, but bump it up a little bit. And any other mind 
uh, mind-altering substances like, uh, um, for example, uh, uh, having one alcoholic beverage uh, would be a good idea. One alcoholic beverage uh, might also shift things. Uh, you want to also get cardiovascular uh, activity or even weightlifting is fine. And, uh, and of course, you're going to have to force yourself to do any of these things because in a low mood, you have no motivation. A little cardiovascular activity would be good for you. Um, help other people because you're a lost cause. So that's a good day to work on. Other, go help someone who has a life because you don't on a low mood day. You have no life on that day. Um, and uh, there was something else to do. Uh, okay. uh, that's enough for now. Back to our picture. Now... Now, when you push up against rejection and failure, when you push up against them, by pursuing your dreams, and obviously you've got to figure out what your dreams are, because you know, I really believe that every one of you had a dream when you were younger of like what you could do. All of you had that dream. Now, you probably don't know what it is anymore, because, because what happened is, let's say, let, picture yourself laying down in the Sahara Desert. You're laying down on like a sand dune, and you're just chilling on the sand dune. And that represents your dream, and it's the shape of your body, because there you are, laying down on the sand dune, and that's the dream. And what happened was, there was a rejection and failure possibility, rejection of failure sandstorm that hit. And so now there's zero visibility, so you thank God you brought a little pair of goggles and a straw to point the opposite direction of the sand just to breathe through. And after a while, you know, the sand's covering you and covering you and covering you and covering you. So now there's the shape of your body, but it's sand. But then now that it's starting to get filled in between the legs, around the arms, around the head, and after a while it's gone. And that's how so many people, I meet so many adults who have no idea what they're here to contribute. So many adults. And that's a really, really painful thing. That's a really painful thing to not know what you're here to contribute. And it's, it's frustrating. It's scary. It's very scary because you know your life's going on. You're not sure what you're here to contribute or maybe you don't know at all. And it can lead to also a long-term painful, perhaps, depression because one of the keys to uh, you know, general well-being is meaning in life. And what could bring more meaning in life than the meaning your life represents, than the, than the life that you mean? Like, what did you mean? When you die, like, what are they going to say? What did it mean that you were alive? So it totally changes the way you think of the words meaning in life. Because meaning in life is, can be a nebulous kind of, you know, get meaning in life, you know, maybe discover something meaningful, and, and then you'll have more meaning in life. But this is more, this meaning in your life, meaning that your life had meaning. Think about that. That's really important that your life had meaning. That you having walked this earth made a difference in a unique way that was, that was in consonance with your, abs, with, with your actual essence. I'm going to say that again, that you're, you're having been on this earth that the earth was different and touched by the fact that you were here. And that difference you made was, was, was 
in consonance, consonance as opposed to dissonance, sorry about the fancy word, but it was in, in, in concert with your very essence. And when you live that way, there's a buzzy type of vibration that causes it to be received well. Meaning after it rejects, because for example, if you find that as an adult, you'll have friends and family that'll try to push you away from it. They'll be scared for you that you should do such things. So you'll have to deal with some level of rejection and failure. But, but in general, it will come with a vibrational connectivity with others that it'll be well received. It will succeed. Meaning it will succeed so strongly that you'll be really unstoppable. Where people, people can't help but say yes to that which you're contributing. I mean, how cool would that be? And if you catch that, if you can find it and you can, and you can live it, what will happen eventually is you're getting a lot of feedback. Now, we're back to the ego. Is that I don't mean the kind of feedback that helps on low mood days, and then we did that whole parenthesis on low mood days. No, I meant the kind of feedback that has fed back to you that the meaning that you've discovered that your life represents is truly the one. Why? Because it's getting fed back to you. There's feedback. Feedback can come in the form of thank you from gratitude of people that you've touched. Feedback often comes in the form monetarily. Hey, people are willing to pay something for this. And it could be just a business you created. But like that's your calling. And you were able to do that and then take the money of that business and do good things with that money. But, but the fact that someone paid you for something that you created is a great feedback. It's, it's, it's speaking volumes about your contribution and adding volumes to meaning. And once you're hitting the level of feedback, which is, in other words, is a stamp that you've hit, you've struck gold on your meaning in life. Once you're getting that feedback, so then you sleep well at night. You sleep well. Because your life's meaningful. You sleep well. You wake up well. You wake up motivated. You're back out there. And you're making that difference again. Now, I'd like to share with you some inter- something very interesting. Raise your hand if you're afraid of death. Let's try that again. You guys weren't ready for a raise your hand moment. Okay. Um, I'm going to say that again. Just everyone loosen up your shoulders first. Because you you're all been sitting there this whole time like this. Okay. I want a real honest answer. And everyone's got to vote. Okay. No one's like allowed to not vote. Raise your hand, honestly. If on a scale of 1 to 10, you're somewhere between 1 and 10 afraid of death. Okay. So... Of the, I don't know how many people are in here, but let's say of tw- 20 of you, 25 of you, there's, uh, there were about three of you who didn't raise your hand. Okay. Now, I'd like to share with you something amazing. And that is that, that people who have discovered their meaning of what they're here for lose their fear of death. And people who have not discovered their meaning in their life here have a, a fear of death usually higher than one and closer towards ten. 
Now, you may say that makes total sense because, you know, if I haven't found my meaning in life, so then dying would be a bummer. So that would make some sense. But, what? Who said there is a meaning? There is no meaning to them since they're dying. (laughs) Yeah. That is the nihilist um, approach. The nihilist approach, I don't know if you've heard, there's like a whole nihil... There's there's kind of this atheist leaning towards left-wing party, you know, those are all the identity politics people and everything and the and the but there's also left wing nihilists that that um le- sorry, left wing atheists that it often leads to nihilism because life becomes meaningless at that point. And uh and sadly it does lead to it does lead to you know, who cares if I die? Because I'm just an or- I'm just random molecules bumping into each other and you know, like, who cares if I die? But what's scary about that is that it could also lead to who cares if if a couple million people die because I championed some sensational value that we've created. And, uh, you know, people always... No, everyone's always lulled to sleep by the left wing because they're so peaceful that we think that they could never hurt anybody. But... But more than more than Adolf Hitler, the uh, the Nazis, more than the Nazis, the the Stalinists, the uh, the communists of Soviet Russia, uh, I think they killed almost double the people, and they were left wing, you know, atheist nihilists, who uh, you know they generally get behind. Uh, they get behind values in an excited kind of heroic way. They feel, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, those who follow things like today, they, they, they get really excited behind their causes. And, and uh, whatever it is, whatever right they feel like they've got a champion, they're always talking rights, you know, that, as opposed to responsibility, which would be a much better discussion. Because rights in generally, responsibility falls on you, rights fall on everyone else. You start championing rights, so that becomes everyone else's problem. And you champion responsibility, that's going to fall on you. Bet a better thing to be championing is responsibility, which is what the Torah says, because the Torah says that, quite the opposite, it says that each one of us has a soul that is of God, and, and because of that, so there, that's going to lead to my sense of a responsibility, and that will be my focus much more than rights, you know, of why everyone else has to protect my rights. You know, it's rather, uh, what, how can I be responsible? And uh, well, I'm speaking in subtle terms, but if, uh, the person who's best at explaining this is Jordan Peterson. He articulates the difference between rights and uh, responsibility amazingly. And he's got a lot of good, good, uh, good classes on those subjects. Um, anyway, but you're right. From a nihilistic, atheist perspective, you know, death shouldn't be a big deal. But here's the thing. Someone who's actually living the dream, someone who's found their meaning, and now they're living their meaning, should not be afraid of, should be afraid of death because everything they've done is going to be lost. And the answer is, 
no for the following two reasons. One is once you've found your purpose of life, dying's not so scary because, because, you know, you're doing what you came to do and so dying's okay, you know, like you did it and now you're dying doing it. This is why I always say that the, um, that, you know, like 30 years from now when all these, you know, the black hat Israel called the Haredi community, the black hat community will be the 18-year-olds 30 years from now. There won't be other 18-year-olds because just during, even now, not 30 years from now, 18 years from now, the births that are, that are happening in the hospitals this hour, while we're speaking, there's lots of births. So the majority of those births are from the black hat community. So 18 years from now, they will be the majority of the country and the majority of 18-year-olds. Now, you could still populate the army with secular Israelis. I can't imagine they'll put up with that anymore. But, uh, you know, you could, I suppose you could take a minority of, of the 18-year-old population and make them the army, but no one's going to stand for that 18 years from now. But 30 years from now, forget about it. That's who the army will be 30 years from now. It will be the community from the black cat community. But the thing is, is that, is that they will be amazing fighters because they'll die doing the purpose. And when you have a purpose, you don't mind dying. There's just something about knowing your purpose that dying is less scary. And if you're defending Israel and what you believe in the deepest depths of your heart is that what we do here as the Jewish people in our sacred land you know, doing our ancestral heritage in our ancestral lands, that if that's your purpose, so fighting the army, you're cool with dying there. And so you're going to fight in a different way than a secular Israeli who stands to lose his dreams, which are very different than, a, than the Torah Jew. The Torah Jew's dreams are to serve God, which could be fighting the army, and that's will be serving God if that's what you're doing. And, and whereas the... <coughs> Whereas a secular Israeli, even though he, he loves his country and he would defend it, but he defends it nationalistically quite like someone might defend any other country. Obviously, our history is a little more intense. And, and, you know, we went through the Holocaust and, like, he doesn't want, he wants to prevent more dying Jews, obviously. So it's more than just fighting for Russia, but it's quite similar to a Russian fighting for Russia. And, uh, but the thing is, is every moment on the battlefield is a potential sacrifice of a car he dreamt of driving, of a house he dreamt of owning, of a, of a trip to South America. They love to go to South America or to India after the army. And it's also at the expense, you know, meaning he's, he, he, his time on the battlefield is, is scary <coughs> because he could lose the things that he was kind of dreaming about. And, um, and in fact, biblically, Biblically, we had a Kohen. We had a Kohen, you know, the priest uh, class of Israel. They're all the people from the tribe of Levi. And uh, the tribe of Levi split in two, the Levites and the Kohanim. Anyone you know, last name Kohen's from there, or Katz is Kohen Sedek, which means righteous or holy Kohen. And the, so there was a Kohen whose job was to walk around the camps of the, you know, before battle, when they were going to go to battle, so they would walk around the camps and actually sniff out scared people. You weren't allowed to fight if you were scared of dying. <laughs> like, can you imagine removing every soldier who was scared of dying? 
from from the what would happen if today we took the Israeli army and removed everyone who was scared of dying? But the Torah is teaching us a principle, and that principle is that principle is that that scared of dying means you're unworthy <coughs> on a battlefield. You're not worth having out there. Scared of dying is not going to be good for us. You know, I mean, imagine imagine you're you're in the battlefield. You're scared. But you're trying not to let anyone see. And you look at the guy next to you, and he's just like. He's like that. What's going to happen to you when you you were already on the edge of that? Yeah, you're going there too. I mean, you're just gonna you're just gonna go right into that same fear that that guy's in. You know, you were just almost there. You were holding on for life, for dear life. You look to your right, the guy is shaking. You look to your left, you know, he's like he's making in his pants. You know, and you're the guy in the middle who was on the verge of both. You're gone. You're just gone. And so. Torah tells us you can't be afraid going into battle. And so this Kohen would go around the camps, the battle camps, and he would find these guys. And they even had three principal fears, and that was maybe you'll miss out on something. If you're afraid you're going to miss out on something, you're out of here. And those three were, you were engaged, so you're already like, you know, you're, you don't want to miss your wedding. You know, some other guy's going to marry the girl you're engaged to. That'd be lame. So you're not going to be the best soldier. You uh, planted uh, a vineyard and you have yet to reap. You've built a house and you've let yet to, lived, to have lived in it. You know, you're not going to be enjoying being a soldier in battle. Not that anyone should enjoy it, but you're not going to be a very good soldier. Having not even lived in the house you built. And by the way, if anyone missed those three categories, the last category, and this is where he had to sniff good, was anyone who's afraid at all. Now, there's something amazing that when you look in the Talmud, uh, you remember where this is, by the way? I think it's in, it's in Makos, is it? Where is that? Oh, it's in Soda, yeah. In Soda, that, here's the crazy part, that if you, if, when you click on the word afraid, that's what we're discussing. Someone afraid to go to battle. When you click on the word afraid, guess what the Talmud says? You know what they're afraid of? They're afraid that on Rosh Hashanah, it was, they got the blessing that they'd live. You know, because Rosh Hashanah it's decided who will live and who will die throughout the year. They're afraid that on Rosh Hashanah, you know, it said they would live. Which is good. So they're on the battlefield and they're going to live. Except they're afraid that maybe they had done something wrong this year, since Rosh Hashanah. Maybe they had done something wrong. Maybe maybe they had broken one of the 55,000 laws. One of them. And has lost his protection from above. Maybe he lost his protection because he had done one thing wrong in the 50... We counted 55,000 laws in the Rambam. He had done... He had blown one of the 55,000 laws which he probably did chuva for, but maybe he feels he didn't do enough chuva for. Now, what's the obvious implication? Who's fighting? Who fights? We already said whoever fights has to be someone who's not afraid whatsoever of death. <coughs> meaning, this is the meaning. This is the meaning. The meaning is serving God, and, the, and he's serving God by protecting who Israel is and what Israel does on its, in its ancestral heritage on its ancestral lands. Protecting that is the mitzvah. And mitzvahs are the serving of God. And that's what he's there to do. And there's no fear of missing out on nothing 
Because that is what we're here to do, is those mitzvahs. And that's the mitzvah at hand. But now we've added a whole other category. You've never done anything wrong. <laughs> You've done nothing wrong. What do you call someone who's done nothing wrong? Someone who's done nothing. <laughs> no, no, no. No, meaning, meaning <laughs> he's been doing, he's just really careful with Jewish law. Tzadik. Yeah, it's called a tzaddik. Meaning to be in the Israeli army, you have to be a total tzaddik. You have to be a total, complete tzaddik. And if you did something wrong, you, you fixed it. You know, you did teshuva, which may include, you know, you brought a little shepsala to the base of Migdash for an accidental breaking of Shabbos. So you'd have to bring a sheep and go through a whole process of teshuva. But you go to the battle having nothing on your slate <laughs> between you and God. Now, could you get anything more backwards than the current situation here in Israel? Could you get a more backward situation of who fights for us? You know, the, the only one who could possibly fight for us would be God through these soldiers. But it's ex- right now we are doing, we have the polar opposite of what Torah says is the Israeli defense force. It's the polar opposite of the Israeli defense forces. That's what Torah says. And Torah's prophecy. Prophecies from God. That means it's true, it's real, it's lasting, it's the real deal. And we are living the exact polar opposite of that. And the funny thing is, the observant Jews don't want to go send their kids to the army, which is kind of funny, but it's not that funny. You know why? Because they'd be happy to send their kids to the army, happy to send them, if they would hand over the keys of the army to a particular rabbi. His name is Rav Chaim Kanievsky. If they would hand the keys over to the rabbi and let the rabbi Chaim take care of business from now on, of the entire army, he runs everything. He runs the Torah study programs going on. He runs the kashrut level. He runs the he, he's, his job is to make sure that all these holy Torah scholars are, are, are in a non-mixed gendered military. Which is the way military should be because half your population should not see certain things so that they can raise children to be holy and pure. And if he handed the keys over to Reb Chaim, so then we would get busy. But where the keys are right now, it's not a good protection for those children from the families that have literally spent centuries, millennia, living and dying for the values that would be ripped out of a very protected 18-year-old kid who's so protected. These kids are like, they're like, uh, you know, sensitive, pure kids. And they need to be protected. And, they, and so the whole discussion about this, the Haredim going to the army is like, I've only been speaking about it now for 10 minutes, but <coughs> why can't the world have this 10-minute discussion? It's so simple to understand. 
You could be the most secular, oh, the Haredim should go to the army person in the world, and hear the last 10 minutes of what I said and said, you know what? It's more complicated than that, isn't it? It's much more complicated than that. Maybe we have to rethink these things rather than just spout off our, our party lines and bleeding heart feelings about, about you know, this thing and this subject of the army. In conclusion, after two major digressions, live your dreams, push up against rejection and failure till the feedback's enough that you can really make a huge difference in your life and make a difference in the lives of others. Get that feedback, sleep well, and be a really happy person. Shalom, everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.